Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices tend to drop right before the games start, and because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. If you're out and about on New Year's and you want to check out the Red Wings hosting the Sharks on, on New Year's Eve, uh, GameTime's a great way to do it. You can just look up the look up the app on your phone, check out what they got going on for you, check out what kind of seats you want, and boom, you're in the door a couple minutes later. The GameTime app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. So download the GameTime app in the Google Play or the App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me as always is Prashant Iyer, and a whole lot of bad has happened since the last time we talked to you guys. I guess on a positive note, the Wings did not give up any goals as of the time we're recording this podcast. They have not given up any goals on this Sunday. They have not, but they did give up 17 in the three games preceding it, scoring only three. They got absolutely waxed by the Toronto Maple Leafs the night before Thanksgiving. I did think they played a little bit better against the Philadelphia Flyers and still lost by five. And then really they actually played, I thought, fairly well against the Washington Capitals. Uh, one goal game with like five, six minutes left. But then uh, obviously Ovechkin polishes off a hat trick with two empty netters, makes it another three goal loss. Uh, and things are pretty much on fire right now. Yeah, this this is exactly what we were, I guess, anticipating to a certain extent when we were last recorded on Tuesday. You know, prior to that, we had talked about the Wings needed to get a couple of wins when they were having the chance to play Columbus and New Jersey. They didn't get wins in those games. And then, you know, Carolina, Toronto, Philly, you know, Washington on on Saturday. It's They've got a murderer's row, and it doesn't get any easier coming up on Tuesday with the Islanders. But, you know, to your point, there were times where they looked competitive. I thought the Toronto game essentially looked like a middle middle school hockey team playing against a college hockey team. The talent disparity was that great. That score should have honestly been worse if not for Jonathan Bernier literally playing out of his mind with whatever infection or virus he had. I mean, he probably saved at least two or three more goals so that could have been a 9 or 10 nothing, and we could have been talking about a new NHL record um, from that one. But beyond that, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think Philly, that first period looked really good. At one point, the shots were 13-2 to Detroit. They just didn't get the chances to convert. And then that entire game turns in the first minute of the third period where the Flyers score two goals in that first minute, blow that game open, and all of a sudden, you know, that that's all that's there for that game. And then the Washington game was largely a competitive game after that first period. They just, again, were not able to convert on the chances that they had. Yeah, I uh, I did not go to the Philly game. I was on my way back from Thanksgiving in Grand Rapids, and then I agreed to watch uh, Cody, our Tigers writer's dog, for, for a couple of days. So I, I went to pick up the dog, and I walked into my house at about uh, 4.25 or so. So halfway through the first period. Shots were 13 to some Detroit, uh, and they were down 1 to 0. And I was like, oh, 
okay, I, I guess I know where this one's headed. And I think uh, not long after that, Robbie Fabry scored. It was a 2-1 game for, I think, most of the second period. And then uh, it got out of hand. And they, 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 minute left in there, just a few seconds left in the second, actually. The Flyers went ahead 3-1, and then the Red Wings give up two in the first minute of the third. And by then it's over. Like, it's the game's completely over. And I think that's something that... Um, it's, it's killed the Red Wings all year long, those short spurts. And I think maybe it goes a little underappreciated how much that ruins things. I mean, you, you talk about – it's not like they were, like, phenomenal for 40 minutes and then really bad for two or something like that. But, but I think they played a really close game for the bulk of it. And then when it got out of hand, the, it was like you might as well just walked off the ice there at 5-1, to one, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not as if they're playing a game where they're getting completely caved in and their goaltender has bailed them out through 40, pin- through 40 minutes and finally the dam breaks and the other team scores in bunches. Like, for the most part, that Washington game, I thought Detroit did a pretty decent job of limiting chances uh, for the Capitals. I didn't think they had a lot of high-quality chances. And, you know, for the most part, on a lot of Detroit's games this year, they haven't really given up a ton of... Of, or I should say an overwhelming amount of high-quality chances. But what it is is there's just a couple of spurts, a couple of breakdowns that happen in you know sequence, and all of a sudden you're looking at two, three goals happening in a short couple of minutes span, and it just completely breaks the morale on this team. I think Blash, it may have been Blashel or one of the players who said this in a recent post-game conference, but they basically said, we're fragile right now, and I think that's... Uh, to a certain extent, a pretty good description of what's happening. Just one or two breakdowns, and all of a sudden that's two pucks in the net against them, and they just don't have the offensive firepower to keep up. This is something we talked about, you know, basically since the existence of this podcast is, is how, you know, being a bad team that, that you know, let's say you loses two-thirds of their games doesn't mean that you win one, lose two, win one, lose two. Similarly, being a team with a really bad goal differential or something doesn't mean that you play – you know, 20 bad minutes and then give up one goal and then play 20 bad minutes and then give up one goal and then play 20 bad minutes and then give up one goal and boom, you've lost by three. That's not how it works, right? It's, it's, uh, it comes in weird spurts. And I think, especially when you talk about, this is something that Jeff Blasher talks about a lot is how, how the league is actually very close talent wise. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean what it might sound like. It doesn't necessarily mean that like, you know, talent to talent, it's a toss-up whether you take the, the Red Wings or the Toronto Maple Leafs. But it, it does generally mean that when you got NHL players on the ice against NHL players, um, a lot of the time the game is going to is gonna play fairly easily. What happens in most games, and the Toronto game would not be an example of this, like you said, but let's say the Washington game, for example. They play them really close, and I would say, you know, Washington, clearly a more talented team, but because they're all NHL players – Let's say the Capitals are, I don't know, 7 to 10% better than, than the Red Wings, which doesn't sound like a lot. But what happens then is you get that 7 to 10%. And so for 7 to 10% of the game, the Capitals dominate you, right? Everything else is more or less, you know, tug of war, push and pull. 7 to 10% of the game. Well, guess what? That's like, you know, four, five, six minutes of game that you're going to get wrecked. And that, that continues to happen. And so I think, uh, that's kind of what it looks like. It, Having a, a a bad team doesn't look like, you know, this this really clean intervals of you know you're going to lose by w- each period by one goal or something like that. It it can mean really corro- or really uh, kind of collapsing effects in short bursts and then getting it together again with with nothing left to play for. Yeah, I mean that's a that's exactly it, and I think that's just been a huge 
blow for the wings. And, you know, to your point, I think part of the issue here is simply just a lack of talent. And we've talked about that a lot of the times. But, you know, the talent disparity across the league isn't so substantial that I, I think that's the only explanation for the wings here. I think part of it is a little bit about their approach to the game to a certain extent. So you and I have talked about this kind of offline, but one of the things that's fascinating about Detroit is really just their inability to generate shots. And whether that's a, a system thing, a talent thing, it's it's hard to separate, but I think there's certainly a mix there. But one of the fascinating things that you can take a look at on HockeyViz, which is Michael Blake McCurdy's uh, website, one of the things he does is he actually computes how dangerous a team is in terms of the chances they generate uh, based on the score state. So what I mean by that is we can look and take all the times Detroit's been down one goal and look at how frequently they generate dangerous chances relative to the league average and how frequently they give up dangerous chances. You know, when Detroit's down one goal, which has been a frequent uh, situation for them this year, they actually generate quality chances at a 30% lower rate than league average. That's 30% lower than league average. Um, typically, we expect a team down one to actually outshoot their opponent as the opponent tends to go back into a shell. But for whatever reason, Detroit's not really able to turn that tide in their favor when they are down a goal. They don't generate dangerous chances. And ultimately, what ends up happening is that's when teams start to extend the lead on them. And in fact, even when Detroit's tied or up one or even up two in those rare situations, they are well below league average in terms of generating dangerous chances. And so I think part of it is just that fundamental problem of when do they kick it into that extra gear? I think it's often too late. And their gear, because of the talent they've got, just simply isn't good enough at times. Yeah, you know, someone asked Blaschel after the game, what can he do as a coach to uh, generate more offense with the lineup? And, and he was kind of saying in the situation at the Red Wings Arena when they've lost as much as they've lost and in kind of the ways that they've lost, sometimes plugging one hole just opens another and you've got to kind of figure out, um, you know, where to, to move pieces. And one of the things that, you know, he ended up saying was kind of, the, the games like Toronto happen when something gets really out of hand. And I think he actually, after the Toronto game, I think he actually alluded to something really interesting in the second period that was uh, like a, kind of a, a shift in how they were going to approach their defensive system to pre- presumably to account for the Russian five Sheldon Keefe Maple Leafs. Uh, and it just didn't work. And so they got caught in between their two systems and then they had to regroup, which actually kind of helps explain why they were able to rein it in the third period and look a lot better. Um, and, you know, the first period, I think most people would agree that those first three goals that Jimmy Howard gave up were kind of fluky. Um, I thought that was very illuminating and, you know, he tried something different. It didn't work. They went away from it. Um, but I think it, it does point to a broader issue the Red Wings are going to have. Like, a lot of it, this comes up in line combinations because people will see Luke Lindenning on the first line instead of Philip Zadina. And, you know, for the record, I think Philip Zadina should be on the first line too. But I think one of the reasons he's not there is probably that 
the Larkin line gets tasked to play against their team's best line. They're, they're going to play against the Ovechkin lines of the world, the Pasternak lines of the world. And if you put Philip Zadina there, that means you have to be committing to pretty much playing him there for 20-plus minutes a night against really, really good talent. Like, Zadina's matchup would have basically been Ovechkin. Um, that's a pretty tough ask. They had Ovechkin on, or uh, Glendening on Ovechkin, and Ovechkin obviously gets a hat trick, but I don't, you know, I don't think it was kind of the, the, the kind of hat trick that, uh, you're, you're necessarily as worried about. And I, it's, the, the point won't satisfy anybody that it's like plugging one hole doesn't, you know, or plugging one hole might open another and it, you know, it doesn't excuse the situation that they're in. But it is, I, it did read, you know, kind of resonate with me a little bit that, you know, they're just the way that the team is set up. They're, the more that they're moving pieces around, they also have to be conscious of the fact that if things go wrong mid change, then a game spirals and it's, it's over by basically this midway through the second period where a game like Washington, they were in with five minutes to go, you know, and I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to, process it necessarily because I, I i guess there is a little bit in there of like just not wanting to get blown out just kind of thing but but there's also a bit of the, the red wings wins this year have come when they've been able to play close games and then pull it out and they haven't blown a single team out the entire year yeah you know i think the point you raised about they're basically playing to not get blown out i actually think that's a really kind of illuminating point because i think that really describes a lot of what Wings fans see, which is why they're very frustrated if, you know, there's been a ton of questions about what's the system, what does it look like, like why are they doing this, what is the intention here. I mean, when you watch the Wings, it, it certainly appears as if the whole purpose or basically the game plan that's set down from the top is we don't want to get blown out, and so we're going to play a conservative defense-first strategy this is actually really similar to what mike babcock did with the wings kind of in 2014 2015 and even 2013 2014 to a certain extent that once a lot of that talent started to leave once you know nick lidstrom leaves once brian rafalski leaves um once you start to see phil has gone hoodler's gone and now your talent level has dropped substantially he basically reigned in that system and it was a defense first low event and this team's going to continue to compete and get to the playoffs, and they still did. And I think a lot of that is what you're seeing now is Blashill's mindset is, I know I don't have the talent, so if I can just keep the game close, I may have a shot at getting a win. And ultimately what you see is, is scenarios like that where Luke Lindenning's going to play on the top line because he's worried about that defensive matchup against uh, Alexander Ovechkin for Philip Zadina. Late in the second period, when that helm line goes out, um, with Nielsen, instead of Zadina being out there, it's Adam Ernie out there. Because again, it's that defense first mindset, the thought that I want to keep that puck, or I basically want to keep the game as close as I possibly can to give this team the best shot to win. And you see a lot of it in the system that they play with the dumping out of the pucks, the dump out exits, you know, dump and chase hockey is basically about keeping the puck as far away from the net as you can. And I think uh, in the printed quote, at least, that Blashill had about the game last night, one of the things he said is priority number one is making sure we play with the puck more. But I thought the illuminating piece of it was his, his basically his instinct was the way we play with the puck more is if we do a better job defensively of getting it back as opposed to thinking offensively, well, what if we just don't give it up? Um, and I think it's a little bit of a different mindset, but I think that really explains what you're seeing is the talent level is not here. 
And so the Wings system is about keeping the game as close as possible in a low event style. And right now the execution hasn't been there as well. I and I, to me it doesn't seem like un like un, unreasonable to to do that approach. I mean I I don't even necessarily know that I. Like that part of the quote that you're referencing, where Blashell said having the puck board, that actually came in as part of the same answer to the to the question I'm referencing of, of what can he do better, and what it what it. So I don't know if that adds context or, or or whatever, but I think when you when you are watching this team and you see a game like Toronto and how awful it was to watch, like the instinct as a coach probably is like can't get behind by three goals after one or the game is over. And then what good was the game, right? Because so much of the season is about development and, and having um, having your guys in games and to be able to get more out of them, right? And if that's just going to shut off when they're down by three goals, they obviously don't have the horses to come back from three goals down. When was the last time they even scored three goals? Uh, yeah. Like, you know, to me, I think it makes sense. And, and I know it's got to frustrate the hell out of people who want to see um, – you know, Zadina in, in, on the Larkin line. I want to see Zadina on the Larkin line because I think he's played really freaking good even on the third line. Uh, but, and, 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 you know, I, from a writer's perspective, I really want to be able to see what, what else is in the tool bag and give me something to write about. But, um, I can't knock him for wanting the game to be close in the third period because it's the only way he can really see his team develop. Is, is that unfair? No, I mean, I think if, if a fan, if any of us were to take ourselves and put ourselves in Blashville's shoes, the number one goal for this team is what? It's to win. And so what gives this team the best chance at winning a hockey game? And from his standpoint and his evaluation of his team, his talent level and what he's got, that's a defense-first system where if I can make it difficult for teams to get through the neutral zone, if I can make it difficult for teams to break out of their own zone, and if I can make it difficult for teams to play with the puck in the Red Wing zone, then I'm giving that team a shot. But if I try to go and open up the game and try to go toe-to-toe when I don't have the offensive talent, then yeah, you're probably going to get blown out even worse. I think the count, and I think a lot of that has to do with the culture of you know, the North American style of hockey. And actually, one of the things I had tweeted out earlier this week was kind of a fascinating quote from Igor Larionov, obviously former Red Wings legend here. Uh, he's going to join the Russian team as an, as an assistant coach. Um, but one of the things he said about his time playing for the Red Army team was when they came over to North America and kind of watched, a lot of the coaches here have basically from the lowest level been preaching simple, 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 kind of conservative, conservative approach, that defense-first approach. And I, I don't think you really fault all the coaches because a lot of them are getting results with it. But I do think at some point you're going to see a coach need to come in and be the John Harbaugh of the NHL. I'm going to completely turn offense upside down. Third and eight, I can run the ball with Lamar Jackson because you've got that special player to be able to do something like that. And I think eventually you're going to want to see someone do something different in the NHL. But if you're Blasio, you don't have the pieces to do that, and you haven't necessarily played that way, and you've gotten success by winning an AHL title um, playing a similar way. And so for him, it is completely understandable to do what he's doing, but I can see from a fan perspective, it is extremely frustrating to watch. 
Yeah, I also am not totally sure that dump and chase is like the best way to to frame the what they're kind of doing on offense. Like, at least when it's done well, I think that there is a lot of dump and chasing happening, but I don't think that's necessarily the the like the the goal there. That's like okay, I, I'm a, I'm Christopher N and I'm two feet from the blue line and there's three defensemen on me and no teammates nearby. Yeah, okay, I just better get this deep, right? I think when when you're seeing the Larkin line do things that maybe get I don't know that register as dump and chase. They're actually just rimming the puck to an open teammate. It's just the easiest way to get it there. Like you could try to go across the middle of the ice, but there's defensemen there and there's a goalie there. And if you go around the boards and you got Bertuzzi in the corner, which is a place that they like to kind of run a little bit of their offense from uh, with Bertuzzi or Larkin in that corner. Uh, I don't think, I don't, I don't call that dump and chase. I think that's just using the boards to, to get the job done. Right. Yeah. And I, I you know, dump and chase is kind of how all of this gets labeled. I think maybe a better way of labeling it is, um, you know, it's it's skillful dump-ins, if you will. Um, it's dump-ins with an intention. It's dump-ins to a certain area on the ice. You're not dumping in just to dump it in. Yeah, area passing, uh, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, you can think of it as aerial passing. I think the problem is, historically, with some of the data that we've seen, um, your success rate and likelihood of sustaining offensive zone time is just just kind of pales in comparison to making an effort to carry in the puck. And I know obviously the, the preaching is avoid those neutral zone turnovers, avoid the turnovers at the blue line. Um, and that's a lot of the reason why teams do uh, dump it in as much as they do. But I think to a certain extent you have to find the right balance uh, between that. And for a team like Detroit, yeah, they've got speed. Yeah, they've got good four checkers. But I think right now they're spending far too much time playing defense uh, because a lot of those aerial passes aren't necessarily resulting in extended offensive zone time. So I just think it's something that, as a coach, you want to constantly reevaluate. I'm sure they've got some numbers or metrics that they're tracking internally that are helping guide some of that decision-making. But, you know, at, at this point, watching it from the naked eye, it hasn't necessarily been executed as well as you would like it to see. No, I agree. I, I You know, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things that um... – it's hard to it's hard to actually know what to take away from it when when what we're seeing is like the worst the worst stretch of hockey you know like you're you're constantly just working to get the puck out of your own end and then you finally do and everyone's tired and so like I I use Chris Friend as an example because he hustles his ass off and he, so he's always carrying the puck over center ice and then you know the teammates will change and he's like all right well I'm one on three right now. So I'm going to dump the puck in and I'm going to go for a change. And then he's done that. He's given the puck away. And then immediately the next line's coming onto the ice and they are tasked to do the exact same thing, which is either stop a break out, a break in and uh, take it up ice and sort of tilt the ice, so to speak. Or they're going to spend their whole shift trying to get the puck back and out of the ozone just so that they can dump it for a change. Because if you don't do that and, and you, you do try the, the entry, you know, sort of the, the possession entry and it doesn't work, while you're already tired, um, you're either going to have to go for a change while backchecking, which not great, or you're going to have to actually backcheck it back into the zone, and you're going to be playing uh, zone defense while exhausted. Uh, not great. So I think all of that was happening in the Toronto game. Like the Toronto game to me was, uh, I I think that might have been their worst game of the year. I'm trying to think if there's a worse one. Maybe no, there's not a worse game than the Toronto game. The Florida one wasn't good though, right? Or was it? 
No, that was also really bad. Yeah. But I think the Toronto game was just start to finish. This was a this. There were different leagues. Yeah. being on, on display. And, and kind of a perfect storm in that sense, where you had like was Nemeth out that game or was he in? I think he was out that game. Yeah. He was out. Uh, the, the Leafs were like at peak. Like we're gonna just show everybody that we like our new coach so much more than Mike Babcock mode. <laughs> uh, and yeah, Howard gets hurt after a couple of tough goals. Nine minutes in, Bernier has the flu and has to come into the game. He was like Hercules, by the way, that game. That I mean, insane. that was unreal effort on his part. I mean, kudos to him. Yeah, he gave up three, but the guy was the third star of the game and deservedly so. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, so, but I, you know, I think that was the worst one. So maybe, but you think about that and, and you think about how, different of options that Sheldon Keefe has with how he can kind of ask his players to play. Like if you're Jeff Blasher, you could tell Franz Nielsen, Darren Helm, Luke Lindenning, Justin Ablocator. I mean, these are all guys. I mean, Ablocator's hurt right now, but you get my point, like to like play creatively in possession hockey. Um, it's not going to look like that. No, it's not. And, you know, I think what that really brings, you know, me to with my thinking is, uh, at this point, you know, you're 0-7-2 and in your last nine games. You've been outscored 24-4 to in those in your last five games. Uh, and over your last 25 games, you have four wins, and you're losing games by an average of almost two and a half goals a game. Wow. And so you have to step back and think, I can I think outside the box here? Because honestly, what could it go worse? Could it look worse? You know, do you think about can I give different assignments to a top six and a bottom six? Do they all have to play the same way? Um, can I give roles instead of systems? Can I, you know, do something a little bit different, opening it up, trying something different? I think all I'm really looking for at this point is, well, you've tried it, and for 28 games it's looked awful, and it's continuing to look awful, and it looks like it's only getting worse. At what point do you just say, I'm going to try something different and I'm just going to stick with it? Because honestly, I don't know that it could go any worse. It's a fair point. I don't, I don't know what the, um, what the necessarily distinction between how roles are doled out right now between lines. That's something maybe I should ask about because I think, uh, you know, certainly systems are a team wide thing, but as we've talked about on the show a lot, like, a system is a framework, right? It's not it's not set plays. So when you have a system where you see a guy dumping the puck in, that's not like the play call. That's just what happened as a result of everything else that preceded it. It's all context. So um, I'm going to ask that question. I think that's a really good one of how different the kind of the role assignments are um, being doled out. I mean, I think there's certainly times in games where you see the Red Wings get aggressive. I don't know if, if people notice this, but every time the Red Wings kill a penalty, their next line is a stacked offensive line and they do it right now they throw Athanasiu up onto the Larkin Bertuzzi line for the very next shift after a penalty kill unless you know Larkin Bertuzzi were either the ones that you know on the ice for the end of the kill or something else but um they usually do try to push the pace because they know that the other team's best players uh just got off the ice after a power play and they can kind of you know take a little bit of advantage of that I, I think that's one of the more interesting things they do um maybe that's something that they can look to in more situations yeah, exactly. And, you know, as the coaches kind of brainstorm and, and think a little bit about what they can do, you know, Steve Eiserman certainly has been a busy man trying to make yeah. sure that he gives the, the team as many tools as possible. Uh, so, you know, he goes out and he trades Billy Sariarvi for goaltender Eric Comrie, 
Uh, who's a 24-year-old goalie with the Coyotes. He'd actually just been waived by the Jets, um, and now he was picked up by the Coyotes at the beginning of the season and then uh, dealt in this game here. And so he's a guy that's got kind of a high pedigree, and I think with Howard's uh, injury and kind of the status, maybe Max, if you have any information on that, can kind of update us. But given that and, and the fact that you need a little bit more depth here, um, you know, Eisman's going out and he's certainly making some more moves to try and make this team a little bit better. Yeah, the timing of the trade was really interesting. It came uh, like, I don't know, 12 it was daytime. hours. Yeah, it was, that's true. It was still bright outside. And it was about 12 hours after I, I ran an article that was basically saying their future goalie situation looks less clear than ever based on what's going on in the first half of this season with Jimmy Howard and then the injury had kind of forced, you know, Pickard up to back up Bernier or so it seemed. Uh, and then Philip Larson struggling mightily in Grand Rapids. I think his safe percentage is below 850 right now. And I think, uh, that naturally is going to force some, uh, moves to be made. And, and I think I, I was thinking more like by the trade deadline and instead it happened immediately. And I don't, you know, I don't think I'm not saying that the article had any part in that. I think it was just a, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit of the same observation that, things we're going to have to, I don't, you know, they don't think Jimmy Howard's injury is long-term as of right now. So I don't think this is like, should be taken as a sign that Howard's out for the year and then needed a new backup. I think not unlike the Robbie Fabry, Brendan Perlini mold of trade that Steve Eisenman has shown uh, a liking to making. This is a 2013 second round pick with a former high pedigree, still young, hasn't really had the chance to uh, the opportunity that he would like. He's backing up, you know, if not the best, then a top three goalie duo in the league and Auntie Ranta and Darcy Kemper. So this is a guy who I kind of think they just give a few chances to. His AHL track record is pretty good. It's like all above 9-10. Yeah, I mean, and he's got the, the pedigree that you alluded to. And so, you know, Kat Silverman, who's an excellent goalie analyst, if you don't follow her already, she wrote an excellent piece for Elite Prospects blog, which is EP Rinkside, talking a little bit about Comrie's uh, journey to the NHL. And so he's actually been a, you know, involved in goaltending school for a really long time, been uh, a part of this new technique uh, for the goalie nerds out there. You can get a little bit more into it. Basically, where instead of tracking the puck with your eyes, you now actually use your entire head to track the puck. And this is a very different and kind of novel system that's starting to come up more and more uh, frequently with the goalies that are being trained nowadays. And Comrie was one of the first goaltenders to really get to the NHL with that having been his training background as opposed to a goaltender kind of learning that on the fly. And so he's had really great results in all the leagues that he's played in, but getting to the NHL, he hasn't really been able to stick. Um, he wasn't able to get time in, in, uh, Winnipeg just because with Hellebuck playing so well, Hellebuck's established himself as one of the best goalies in the league. He didn't get the time there. And then obviously Arizona claiming him, um, Ronte and Kemper have played excellent. And so it's, it's tough for him to get ice time there. So maybe this is another scenario where, uh, Eiserman's able to pick up a guy who has the pedigree, has the talent, um, but hasn't really gotten the opportunity to really play. And so, you know, this might be a good shot. And this, may, again, gives the Wings another piece to evaluate. And, you know, for from your article, Max, I think this is exactly the kind of move that Detroit needs because the, the future beyond this season was really murky. You know, you didn't really want to bring Howard back on another contract if his numbers look the way they do. It certainly doesn't look like Bernier is able to handle 
the starting load um, consistently, and it doesn't look like Larson or Petrozelli or Van Pottelberg or whatever other goaltender in the wing system, none of them look anywhere close to NHL ready as early as next year. So you did need that stopgap. Yeah, and, and, you know, we've had questions from listeners before that I thought were really sharp questions about how to go about approaching the the goalie situation because I don't think the Red Wings have had anyone um, kind of in the age range of, of Comrie uh, in their system in order to kind of say, hey, this is a guy who could uh, start to take the reins. And, and you, you know, one of the guys that w- was asked about was Freddie Anderson. How can the Red Wings replicate Freddie Anderson? I'm not going to say that this is that, but this is at least a move that um, is in that line of thinking, right? You're, you're reclaiming a high pedigree guy who you're hoping that with more opportunity can surge to the front. Not actually unlike a Jordan Binnington. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And Binnington, now you're not saying that. No, right, right, no, 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 no. Right, right, right. But, you know, Bennington was another similar guy. He was a little bit older. Uh, I think he was 25 last year. Um, again, just hadn't gotten a consistent NHL shot. And that's kind of the, the deal you want to make. In, in today's NHL, the really savvy teams are finding goaltending for cheap. Uh, you're avoiding paying your goaltender the six, seven, eight million dollar contract. You already can see how Sergey Bobrovsky's contracts panned out in Florida. He's got seven years on that, and that's not going to be a pretty contract. You're already seeing a massive decline in Carey Price, and he's just a couple years into that massive extension. And so what you're trying to avoid is tying up a lot of money and taking chances on goaltenders um, that maybe have a pedigree or have shown flashes or have the technical skills but haven't necessarily gotten a sustained or great opportunity and are still relatively young. I mean, 24 years old uh, for Comrie, he's he's relatively young by a goaltender standpoint, um, and so you can hang some you can hang some hopes on him that he potentially develops with an extended run in the NHL. Um, you know, so we'll see how that all pans out. But it is an interesting thing that you know that Howard's injury um, is not expected to be long term because then that poses the question of the Wings: Do you carry three goaltenders, or is somebody going to go through waivers? Because Comrie would need to go through waivers. Obviously, Bernie and Howard would need to as well, and neither would really be too thrilled about that. So what do you think the thoughts are um, in terms of how they're going to carry the goaltenders moving forward? It would not surprise me to see him carry three. Um, I mean, they they certainly could try to sneak Comrie through. It's, it's not impossible. We've seen certainly a lot of guys that people think would get claimed on waivers manage to uh, get through and then obviously go report to the AHL. But I, I think it's interesting because um, – to me, now you have two goalies under contract for next year, and that's Bernier and Comrie. And so I think there has to be some threshold. I don't know if it's 905, 910. With, the, with this defense, is it just 900? Where... I was going to say, nine, 890 sounds great at this point. So Yeah, right. So, I'm, so I mean, there's got to be a threshold where you're saying, hey, we're, you know, we're going to, if you're the Red Wings, you're saying, you know, we're going to give him a chance and – if if he can do a serviceable job, maybe maybe you're just walking into next year with uh, Comrie and Bernier as your duo. I mean, I don't think Howard has shown that he can you can be confident in him as a starter as of yet for next year. I mean, he's getting up there in age. He's had a great career. It's no disrespect to Jimmy Howard in saying that. It's it's just about um, how do you how do you go into next year expecting with him with his contract coming up, expecting him to to, to basically run this exact same thing back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, he's 36, I think maybe even 37 at this point. He's, uh, you know, the Wings are also 
completely aware of this. Each of the last couple of seasons, they've been trying to pare down his workload. You know, the goal this year was to really split the starts between him and Bernier, and they've basically done that um, throughout their games thus far. And so, you know, Howard's had an excellent career. He's on, you know, your all-decade team. He was on my all-decade team. Um, arguably, you know, one of the better goaltenders that has ever suited up for the Wings. But it's hard to ask him to continue night in and night out bailing out this team um, behind this defense at this age. And I, I think you're starting to see some of that catch up to him. You know, the interesting piece is carrying three goaltenders. I'm trying to think back to the last time the Wings legitimately carried three goaltenders. I'm curious if any of our listeners have a better memory than me. The last time I remember this happening was 2003-2004 when the Wings went into the season with Curtis Joseph and Manny Legacy as their two goalies, and then Dominic Hasek unretires midway through the year. And so then they're stuck with Curtis Joseph, Dominic Hasek, and Manny Legacy, all three guys who were number one goaltenders. And that ended up being a really awkward dressing room for Curtis Joseph. Uh, for quite a while, and then Hashik ends up leaving after that year and going and signing with the Senators, but that's the last time I can actually remember the Wings doing that. Um, so I'll be interested to see if they do that, because what that does mean is uh, you get 20 skaters at that point, because you have a 23-man active roster. You've got three goalies if you're carrying them. That means you've only got 20 skaters, which typically means one extra forward, one extra defenseman. Um, so it'll be interesting, given the Wings' injuries and, and situation that they've had for the last few weeks uh, if they do carry three goalies. And if they don't, uh, and you're Philip Larson, you're pretty scared that you're on your way to Toledo. You're about to head to Toledo. Yeah. So, you know, that's another alternative, I guess, given how poorly he's played uh, in Grand Rapids. And again, it's been seven games for him, and it's his first season in there. He's not off to a good start, but potentially he needs a little bit more time uh, developing at a lower level, like the ECHL. Um to see if you know he can find his game there. And the thing is, unlike the Red Wings, the Griffins have a pretty good defense. Like you can't really blame a whole ton if you're a goaltender on your defense core in front of you in Grand Rapids. Yeah, I mean we've talked at length about the Wings, uh, the Grand Rapids defense core down there being kind of relatively loaded for an AHL team. With you know you've got a couple of veterans in there with Lashoff, and then you've got. Obviously, Moritz Siders had an excellent start to the season. You're able to rotate in guys like Gustav Lindstrom. You're able to rotate in and all Kasky. Hicketts, uh, Jonathan you know, Erickson. You've got Hicketts. Erickson's played some games there. I mean, that's a that's a pretty strong Grand Rapids defense. And so, uh, you know, it's hard to place the blame on the defense there. Uh, so, you know, potentially Philip Larson benefits from some time in the ECHL. And I don't think it should be viewed... Um, as a negative thing, as a massive negative to his development, given that goalies, you know, are relatively unpredictable, and sometimes they take a little bit longer to get to the NHL. No, but if I'm him and I'm on a bus to Toledo or in a car to Toledo or something tomorrow, I'm going to be regretting uh, not taking another year of college at Denver, that's for sure. Exactly. Yep. All right, uh, we're going to get to the questions in one second, but i got to ask you a bigger picture question first. It's something that I asked Jeff Blaschel post-game uh, against the Capitals, and, you know, not really a earth-shattering answer to it, but I am curious about it. So do you feel better or worse about the Red Wings uh, prospects? I guess I asked about, do you see, do you, do you feel better or worse about how things have looked? Uh, so, But maybe I'll ask you a bigger picture question in terms of the rebuild than I was asking uh, him. 
better or worse about the Red Wings kind of prospects or not in the sense of, you know, the farm system, but just how they look uh, than you did a year ago? You know, I'm going to probably surprise some people by saying I feel better. Um, I think there's a couple of key things that I was looking for this year. I think one, from the established players, from your Larkin, your Mantha, and your Athanasiu, and your Bertuzzi, you wanted to see those guys take the next step and kind of separate themselves. So we talked about this on the last podcast, but while the, the points aren't there for Larkin, he hasn't really been able to score as much, his uh, basically impacts relative to the league average, he's been one of the best forwards in terms of controlling the quality of shots, quantity of shots, against when you control for a whole host of other factors. Um, and so he's been, I think, solid. You just want to see him find the net a little bit more, but that was the big step was seeing him round out his defensive game. Um, so that's encouraging for me. Obviously, Anthony Mantha, we've talked about this at length, that he's been one of the top three forwards in the, or top three wingers, I should say, in the NHL. And so that's a massive step forward for him. He's 25. You know, he's a guy that you see long-term being a part of the future. Athanasius had a really tough year, but at the same time, his contract's up at the end of the year. And so there is that flexibility that if Detroit does feel like they want to move him or try and get something for him, um, you know, they may be able to. He may, it may be a little bit of separation in terms of what's happening with his performance. And then Tyler Bertuzzi, he's a guy that when he was drafted, people laughed at the wings. He wasn't even ranked by the NHL Central Scouting Service. And they took him in the second round. And all of a sudden, this is a legitimate top-line forward um, playing really, really well, scoring really well. And so I think those established pieces are encouraging. You're seeing the contract turnover happen. You're seeing an aggressive GM going out and taking flyers on young players in disadvantageous situations, plugging them in and seeing what they look like without taking on contracts that extend beyond one to two years. Comrie's was the first deal of getting a player that's going to extend beyond this season. Um, so I think that's a really smart, heady move to be able to have that roster flexibility. And then from a prospect standpoint, you have to love what Sider's done. You have to love what Zadina's been able to do in Grand Rapids. And honestly, in Detroit, he's looked so much more well-rounded and comfortable, even though he's not getting to play on those top lines, that that's encouraging. Um and then, you know, last but not least, the encouraging, although dissatisfying thing is the Wings are pretty clearly establishing themselves as a lock for a top four pick. And this is a loaded, loaded draft. And so by doing, by finishing with the worst record in the NHL, you're essentially giving yourself a 50% shot at a top three pick, roughly a 36% shot at a top two pick, which is Quentin Byfield and, and uh, Alexis Lafreniere. Two guys who could be kind of elite, elite talents in the NHL. So I think putting that all together, I think there are glimmers of hope here um, that should keep Wings fans excited. It's a really good point. I, I think that uh, certainly in terms of the individual players, the, the, the play of Anthony Mantha, Tyler Bertuzzi, Philip Hironik, uh, those are all things that certainly since – you know, this time last year, you'd have to feel way better about, uh, and big picture, those are big pieces. So I, I definitely get that. Um, there is just also a part of me though, that I think I felt like this off season, at least I felt like last year was the Red Wings rock bottom and everything now was going to start to kind of, uh, trend at least very slowly in the, in the right direction. I don't, uh, you know, I certainly thought they're going to be a bottom three or four teams. So maybe in the standings, they were going to get worse, but I think I thought that 
uh, just overall things would would look better this year um, because of some of the the development of various players. I think you know it, it's weird because you point to things and you're like, what 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 really changed? And they added Philpola, who I think has been fine. You know, like I think that's actually been a, a net positive addition for them. Nemeth, a net positive addition for them. Uh, and yet they're they're just the worst team in the NHL by a mile. Yeah, and I mean it's it's tough. Uh, I think it's important that we understand how long it takes some of these rebuilds to turn it around. And we talked about this for years in Detroit that the Wings just had simply too many players on long term high dollar contracts where they just weren't really worth that value, so to speak. And so what you're seeing is the Wings kind of struggling to dig out of those contracts. And it's going to take some time before they're really and truly able to retool um, their roster because while all of us can appreciate what the Wings added, the thing that was probably less appreciated is how much were those older players going to decline? Yeah. And how would that balance out the progression of the younger players as well as the additions. And I don't think anyone expected Nielsen to regress as hard as he did. I don't think anybody expected Jimmy Howard to struggle as much as he has. I don't think anybody expected, you know, Mike Green to struggle as much as he has in terms of being able to move the puck consistently. Trevor Daly has struggled with injuries. The Wings are missing Danny DeKaiser and um, who's a big, big piece of their defense, and therefore have had to plug in a lot of guys that were kind of consistently playing in the AHL. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that are still there that are massive negatives that kind of help balance out why this hasn't turned around. You know, for listeners of the podcast, I've tossed it back to Carolina a lot in terms of uh, modeling a rebuild. If you look at Carolina for five consecutive seasons – they were sixth or worse in their division. So they were seventh, eighth, sixth, seventh, sixth before they finally turned it around last year and made the playoffs in the conference finals. Um, they went a decade without making the playoffs. I don't know that it'll be a decade for Detroit, but you're almost halfway there. And it's probably going to be at least three more years to turn it back around. So I think it's important to just settle in. You're looking for exactly what Blaschel said, signs of progress along the way, um, and if you can find those and hang your hat on those, kind of the ones that I just laid out, I think it makes it a little bit easier to digest what you're saying. That's fair. And, I, you know, I think Danny DeKaiser is someone who, and I wasn't really around this beat when he first arrived, so I don't necessarily know the history. You know, since I really joined the beat full-time last year, I am consistently impressed by DeKaiser when he's in the lineup. And I think the problem is he just hasn't been in the lineup enough. I, I think he's one of their top two defensemen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to argue with that, uh, given the talent and the other players on this team. I think he's right there with Philip Ronick for the best defenseman on the team right now. So you're talking about the Wings have been missing him for more than a month oh, yeah. now. Yep. Um and that, that's a huge detriment because especially when you're talking about bringing in guys like Alex Biega's kind of hardly played in the NHL. You know, I've really liked what I've seen from him, but he's a guy who's been generally uh, in the AHL for the for the better part of his career. He hasn't really been able to sustain NHL success. Um, you know, this is kind of Chalowski's first extended NHL stint. He started off obviously last year in the NHL, but eventually was sent down to Grand Rapids. Um 
you know, so there's just a lot of pieces here that just aren't what the Wings are accustomed to seeing. I mean, you got you've got multiple games from Dylan McElrath. We never we didn't even think we'd have to talk about Dylan McElrath this year. And look, the guy's played you know ten games, eleven games for the Wings now. So, you know, it's 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 tough. But you've got a lot of pieces in there that just aren't typically in the NHL, and that's why it's not going to look pretty. Yep, and I can imagine uh, some of our listeners who are certainly more emotionally on the hook to, to hearing that aren't going to receive it well. But I, I, you know, I think it's all fair fair points to make. All right, now we're going to get to listener comments, and the first one I think is just essential. I I don't know how um, I didn't think to ask you this myself sooner, but I I think this is the most important question I'll ask you all day, and it's from Rowan, and he asks if the Michigan men's basketball team scores seventy three points. And the University of North Carolina men's basketball team scores 64 points. What does that mean? You know, Max, that's a that's a fascinating question. And obviously the listeners of this podcast can't see what I'm doing right now, but I'm sending Max a photo of the UNC's seven <laughs> national title banners. Um, 1924, 57, 82, 93, 05, 09, 17. Uh, you know, that was ugly. This is probably the worst Carolina basketball team that they fielded since the Larry Drew the second years, which I think was 2008-2009. So, actually, sorry, 2009-2010. 2008-2009 was a national title. Um, so, you know, this is a really bad team. There's one good player on Carolina. But, honestly, Michigan was criminally underranked coming into the season. I think he, they backed it up by also beating Gonzaga pretty well. So... I think Wolverines fans, you got a good basketball team on your hands once again. And obviously, I don't recognize the photo of the banners because up here in, in Southeast Michigan, you know, they just take banners in the middle of the night when they feel like it. So uh, obviously, I, I don't even know what I'm looking at here. Um, <laughs> the next question's from Adam. He says, "Is Robbie Fabry a viable signing and part of the rebuild?" So I think he means like when he's at RFA this summer. Is is he a guy you're planning to bring back, or is this a piece of trade bait? That's an excellent question. Um, you know, my initial thought when the Wings acquired him was that it was going to be to take a flyer on the guy. I didn't obviously think he was going to play as well as he had. And my thought was potentially, you know, you, you flip him for something else. But the guy's 23. I mean, he's he's in the same draft class as Dylan Larkin. There's no reason he can't be a part of the Red Wings rebuild. And with how good he's looked on that second line, I mean, he's really been the only guy scoring in the last few games. Um, you know, he's almost at a point-per-game pace in a stretch where the Wings haven't won a game in nine. Uh, and so, yeah, I absolutely think he should be a part of the Wings' future. And honestly, if I'm Iserman, I'm considering calling him right now and seeing what you think an extension looks like for him because I think he's another core piece that the Wings have been able to add that's a top six guy that I would certainly consider locking up to a, a three to four year contract. I don't know that I would give him term beyond that, just given, you know, you try to avoid giving long term deals to non elite talent. And, and Fabry is a guy that's really good, but you may want to avoid paying him beyond 27, 28 just to make sure he sustains that uh, performance. But yeah, I think he's a guy that's part of the core, and I don't know that I would want to shop him right now. Yeah, and, and unlike Anthony Mantha and Tyler Bertuzzi, who I think are in, are, you know, have clear incentives to wait until this summer to do their negotiating. To me, Robbie Fabry is someone who I think you might actually be able to get that done with just because of his injury history, because of kind of the uncertainty there. He might be a guy who is motivated to 
to take an offer in the, in the three to four year range of just security, right? Like if you're offering him, what's the offer? Three, three times three and a half. I mean, if you're Robbie Fabry, you might do that. Yeah. I mean, given, you know, your injury point is well made. I mean, he's the guy's missed more than an entire season with injury and he's had two ACL tears. I mean, he's absolutely a guy that, Hey, if you're willing to give me $10 million for three years, yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely on board with that. And I think that'd be a really smart move um, from Wings management to get him to a three, four year contract, um, you know, as soon as they can. Otherwise, he's going to keep driving that price up. Yep. So, I mean, I, I think he's probably of all the of all the RFAs that they, you know, maybe project, I guess, to, to sign. He'd be the guy who I would say best chance of getting something done in season. Um, Phil asks, can you guys discuss roster deployment and line combinations? Are they getting the best out of their forwards when playing potential scorers, i.e. Zadina and Perlini, with centers who have one assist? Who could that be? And checkers on scoring lines. This issue is ongoing. Um, we did talk about this a little bit already, but yeah, we could, we could talk some more about it. I mean, I think we talked about it maybe a little bit more from the context of that one answer and, and maybe the most recent deployment. Um, are they getting the best out of their forwards? It's a complicated question because I think... A lot of times when they spread lines out, I think people talk about it as though they're spreading out the offense. I think what they're doing is they're spreading out the defense. And so I think, uh, you know, there, is Zadina being put in the best possible position to score goals? No, he is not. Uh, but it, does that mean it's like the worst thing for the team? I don't think that is the worst thing for the team either. So it's... Uh, it's complicated. I mean, I I had a conversation with someone this weekend about you know who, who felt like if Zadina wasn't going to be on the Larkin line and or or the uh, Philpola line, which to me the Philpola line needs to never get broken up again uh, because it seems to be the only way to get all three of those guys working at the same time. But um, if you know right now the holes on the Larkin line, Glendening was there. Zadina to me is a pretty good candidate to take that spot. But the question that, you know, we were kind of arguing is, is he better served in Grand Rapids or on the, the Nielsen line? And my argument is he's clearly better served playing with NHL players because if you send him back to Grand Rapids, he's, he was playing with Dom Turgeon and Turner Elson, who to me aren't that different of players. They're just not NHL versions of Nielsen and Helm. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. I think you have to think about it from Blasio's perspective, which we kind of talked about earlier is what's the goal for him? And we've talked about this, that given the Wings' talent level and kind of his perspective and his coaching philosophy kind of under Mike Babcock, it's defense first. And so I think absolutely you're seeing a defensive mindset approach to the line combinations. It's, all right, I've got a player like Philip Zadina, and I'm actually worried about his defense, so I'm going to stick him with Franz Nielsen and Darren Helm, two guys that are excellent defensive players. Um, You know, same thing. I'm going to move Luke Lindenning up to the top line because – that top line is going to match up against a lot of top lines, and they need to have a little bit of extra help. Um, and the second line has been clicking so well that he's not going to mess with it. And so I think it's really difficult because from Blaschel's perspective and the way that he's approached the team, it is with that defense-first mindset. So you can make a pretty compelling argument that he's not maximizing the offensive potential of those players, but the defensive potential, which is a lot harder to measure and to really assess – you know, appropriately in a method, you know, in an appropriate method, I think that's a tougher question to answer. Like, are these guys getting better defensively um, in this system? Are they able to play better defensively? Are they developing better defensive habits? I don't know the answer to that because I can't really measure that or assess that easily. 
Um, but I can tell you that that's probably the philosophy and that's probably the approach here is the defense first mindset, which is why he's not approaching it with let me maximize my offense. It's let me maximize my defense. And the complicated thing when you're talking about, you know, you're framing it as a one or the other, which, which one you're going to maximize is like if you pick offense and you go down 3-0, are you getting any more offense or are the guys checking out? Because they've been checking out. I mean, not in a sense of like they're not working hard, but just in a sense of like you can see the the confidence impact on, on everything they do. Yeah, and I mean that's the point that I've raised multiple times on Twitter is if you see a guy like Zadina who has dominated scoring at every level he's played at and was on a point per game, just about a point per game pace in the AHL, if you call him up and you stick him in situations where – He's not able to score, um, and he doesn't see the puck go in the back of the net. Uh, how much does that impact his confidence? And for a Wings team that has been playing defense first and has unfortunately gotten down by monstrous amounts of goals, I don't know that it's reasonable to expect them to, to rally and find a way to generate offense when right now you have one line that is constructed with an offensive mindset, and that's Athanasiu, Fabry, and Fopola. And when you look at what line is scoring for the Red Wings, it's Athanasiu, Fopola, and Fabry. And so, you know, I do think at some point you have to think about, well, what if I change things up? What if I do things from an offensive standpoint? Because, again, like I've said multiple times today, it's it can't get any worse. But what I'm saying really. is it's not either or. I, I think they're just they're, – it's it's like a big picture. Like they don't think Zadina's bad at defense. They just – that's not what they think. It's it's about like if you're going to put him with Larkin, is he good enough at defense to go head-to-head with Ovechkin? Is he good enough to go head-to-head with Pasternak? Is he good, good yeah. enough to go head-to-head yeah, with Yeah, I think Nylander? that's fair. Yeah. You know, I think the tricky part when you, when you go to answer that is um, you know, is he able – you also have to think about it from the offensive side. Is he good enough offensively to create when Helm and Nielsen are his line mates? Which I think is what the frustrating piece is. Um, they for have Wings fans. They have though, right? I mean, he that line. I mean, he's, good. Yeah, yeah, he's he's created chances. I think he's been excellent. You know, in, in his role, which is why you know you'd like to see him get a chance with to play with some guys who could actually finish some of what he's creating. Oh, I, I want to see him on the first line too. I'm, I'm just saying, I, I think that um, sometimes it seems to get reduced to it's it's either defense or offense, and it's I just don't I don't think that's the the calculation. Uh, next question comes from Lars, who says, I watch all the games I can, live or the day after. My question's about systems. This is going to go in a similar direction. Can you say what the Red Wings are trying to do primarily with their offense? If you have a working system in place, the total should be greater than the sum of parts for the Detroit Red Wings. In his opinion, it is not. You understand the system better than I do. I will turn over the floor to you. Yeah, I mean, this is something we touched on a little bit earlier, and it's a really difficult thing to assess. I've mentioned this on a previous podcast, but... You know, systems, what we're really evaluating is execution and not what the blueprint or the game plan look like because we don't know what the blueprint, what the blueprint or the game plan look like um, to have a good understanding. But largely what I've noticed when I watch the Wings is there's a lot of emphasis on north-south hockey. And what that basically means is you want to take a short path or your, your emphasis is moving from your end of the ice to the other end of the ice without too much moving laterally on the ice or not a lot of skating across the ice or through the, you know, kind of east-west hockey, if you will. Um, and the emphasis is to get to basically use that team speed with these placed dump-ins. Uh, the players are basically hitting the center ice or getting just over, and then they're looking for that winger to be coming flying up 
on the opposite boards, they're trying to basically rim the puck around to them or place the puck in an area where that forward could then retrieve it, and then they can start their offensive um, game plan. And I think for the most part, you know, that system hasn't really been, you know, conducive to generating a lot of end zone time. Um, I do think evaluating the systems, again, when we talk about it, we tend to focus more on the offensive piece of it, and we don't see the puck going in the net, and then you see a lot of goals going in against. But, you know, like Max and I have talked about, I think uh, the couple of games most recently, the Flyers and the the Capitals games, I do think you actually saw the, the Wings do a relatively decent job of minimizing quality chances, and again, they've done it at okay job over the course of the season at minimizing those quality chances as a part of this system but you know they're it's really difficult to to say what they're they're trying to do but it does appear to be a lot of emphasis on dumping the puck out of their zone dumping the puck into the offensive zone with the mindset of being able to go and chase it and retrieve it um, to basically try and keep the puck out of their defensive zone as much as possible. I do know with like, so I think it was Nick Jensen last year. I'm I'm reaching back a little bit into my memory, so forgive me if I'm a little bit off one way or the other on this. But I'm pretty sure they talked about with Nick Jensen. Now, one of the things they worked on with him was not just dumping it up and, and getting rid of it. So I, I do think there is something that it's it's not all just get it out, get it in. Um, but you know, certainly I think no one would argue that the Red Wings have not made enough. You know successful passes or even necessarily looked to uh, possess the puck in or out of the zone enough. So I, I, I do think it can be hard to parse what is by design and what is by uh, circumstance, but um, certainly I think, yeah, it's it's not looking good right now. Uh, next one is from Valentin, who wants to talk about Oliver Koski. Calls him uh, or asks if you see him as a potential call-up anytime soon. Are there other options from the Griffins like Cider closer to a call-up if the Red Wings' defense doesn't look better anytime soon? Uh, I don't know how much have you gotten to watch Koski much? No, I haven't been able to watch. I've only just seen the stats, which obviously haven't looked great. So I think, you know, you've probably gotten to see Grand Rapids a little bit more than me. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I've been a little underwhelmed there. I think you can see the offensive upside with Kasky. I'm not sure that he necessarily looks NHL ready. I think Sider looks farther along. Now, does that mean I think Kasky wouldn't be a sooner call-up than Sider? No, I think they're going to do whatever they think is best for Sider with the kind of investment they've made in him. Like, if they needed a defenseman, and, you know, there's several guys, I think, ahead in terms of Erickson, Hicketts, before we get to either of those two. But, um... I, I would guess they would actually pull Kasky up sooner just in the interest of not disrupting um, kind of where they see Cider. Now, it could also mean, you know, let's say they're going to give they're going to do what Prashant and I think they should do, and that's give Cider 10 games in, in February or March. Um, maybe Cider is up indeed before Kasky, and I think certainly he's got a real shot to be on the roster next year. Um, as of right now, Kasky hasn't, to me, shown that, that he is in that same um, timeline. But, you know, he, he's shown some offense. I just don't think it's... It's been uh, as immediate as as I think I might have expected in the summer. Yeah, I mean, it'll be really interesting with him because he came over on a one-year deal. Yep. Uh, and so I don't know what his expectation was or what kind of the organizational pitch was to him to get him to come over from Finland. But, you know, I don't know that he envisioned himself playing in the AHL for probably the entire year. And so, you know, I do wonder at some point if you see him in the NHL just so the Wings can – trial him, see what he looks like before they know one way or another if they have to commit anything to him. 
um, beyond this season. Yep. All right, a couple quick ones, and then we'll wrap up. Tori asks if the Red Wings end up with the number one pick. Should it be Byfield, based on the fact that center is a premium position, even if Lafreniere is a better player? Yeah, this is a tough question. I think for the most part, you're you're generally going to take the best player. Um, and based on kind of what scouts have said about Lafreniere versus Byfield, there's still a little bit of a feeling that Lafreniere is a better player or maybe a more kind of a higher end talent, if you will, than Byfield, although I do think a lot of people feel that it's close. I don't think it would be unreasonable for a team like Detroit that sorely is lacking at center to take a guy like Byfield with the first overall pick. I don't think you'd have anybody step back and say that was an outlandish decision just based on the way that Byfield has played this year. Um, but I think if you're Detroit, you're probably trying to add the best possible player to your team regardless of position at, at this point. And, um, you know, that may be Lafreniere, that may be Byfield. I think we'll just have to see how it shakes out over the course of the season. Both guys have played about 20 games and have both looked phenomenal. So um, either way, if you're ending up in the top two, I think you're getting a, a pretty nice player out of that. Yeah, I mean, I would take Byfield right now. I think if, if I was in charge there because I think that the center position you, you can't ignore it in terms of deciding who the better player is right I think that um, if, if you've got a guy who's and certainly Byfield's scoring at crazy rates and who you know who knows how that translates but um, I, I think I, I think Byfield maybe should be the case um, or sorry should be the pick if, if they have the opportunity to choose which is it's unlikely they will have that chance to choose if you're the Red Wings you're just hoping to be in the top two so you get one of them right yeah, exactly. But you know, you, I mean, you look at their at their kind of future um, in, in the pipeline. You've got Manta, Bertuzzi, Zadina, Athanasiu. Maybe one of maybe one of those guys isn't around or something. But then you've also got Berggren, Mastro Simoni. You got wingers that can play in a top nine. You've also got a couple of centers in Valeno and Rasmussen, who I think are probably third line centers. Or if you want to flex them to to wing, they'll be middle six wingers. But to get a, a second line center that could potentially be your best center uh, down the line, to me, I would have a really hard time passing that up if it's even close. Yeah, I mean, Byfield is six foot four, two hundred and twenty pounds, and the comp for him from a player perspective is Evgeny Malkin. And so when you're saying that that is available to you, that's very difficult to pass up because, um, you know, there's just not centers that are 6'4 that score two and a half points per game in juniors and do that while being the youngest player on their team. I mean, Byfield, you know, a lot of people probably haven't noticed this, but Frenier is, I think, 10 months older than Byfield, yes. maybe 11 months older. And so, again, when you're thinking about age adjustments and things like that, it's it's tough, and that's why I think a lot of people think that Byfield has maybe closed the gap on Lafreniere to a certain extent. Um, but we also have to remember Lafreniere is one of a handful of players, like Joe Valeno, to get exempt status to be able to play um, in the CHL at the age of 15. And then la his season last year as a 16-year-old is one of the best seasons ever in the queue. And again, he's having another dominant season this year. Um, you know, actually him and Valeno last year were going toe-to-toe -to -toe for the overall scoring title in the queue and Valeno edged him out I think at the end but you know Lafreniere was 16 and he was doing that and Valeno is you know 18 and he's doing that so it's a big difference but either way I think you're ending up with an excellent player uh, did did Lafreniere get exceptional status I'm pretty sure he was in exceptional status because this would be his age 18 season right so it would have been last year would have been 17 17 18 would have been 16 
So, I mean, I guess technically this counts as his age 18 season. Because oh, because he, he started when he was 15. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. he started when he was 15. Last year he was starting at 16. This year he is starting at 17. He'll be – he turned 18 in October. So Okay, so that's where the birthday thing comes into play again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's it'll be a real question. I mean, if they get the number one overall pick – uh, to me, that's it's a real question, and I, you know, I think if if you, uh, if you, I think this could be the first one in a while where it's it seems like it's a real debate. I know people say that every year, though. Yeah, I mean, last year there were people saying Kako over Hughes. You know, a couple years back it was uh, Hishire was being yeah. I mean, you know, so there's always been you know Hishire versus Nolan Patrick. I think was another one that was relatively close. Right, so. that's right. Yeah, Nico Nolan, and the answer was neither. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> not that, not that they're not, you know, he sure's a really good player, but you know, three and four were like, what, Heisken and Makar or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Makar, I think, was actually later on, but Heisken was three. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then the last one, this is going to be all you the whole way. So D asks, if the Red Wings were a bourbon, which bourbon would they be? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like the bourbon that, Every time you drink it, it, it tastes awful, but you still somehow find yourself, you know, finding a, a glass of it in your hand uh, on rare occasions. And you know when you go to take a sip, it's going to be awful, but you still take that sip. Uh, for me, that's anything from Jefferson's Reserve. I don't know what it is. Whatever the finish is on those bottles, uh, anything from their lowest end product to their highest end product has the same awful aftertaste i can't put a single thing from them regardless of how good it is you spend 200 bucks on it i'm still gonna you know i can't do it but at the end of the day i find all of a sudden there's there's two bottles on my shelf and i'm like where did that come from and then you pour it and you're thinking all right maybe this time it's going to be better and it's never better um that for me would probably sum up the red wings it's also similar in the fact that prashant actually does have a twice weekly jefferson reserve podcast uh on the athletic so we'd love for you to (laughs) to rate and subscribe to that as well uh that's gonna do it for us sorry we ran a little long today uh sorry the season seems to be running a little long in general but we'll keep talking to you guys all the way through it thanks for listening and if you want to get uh the midweek episode which we'll we'll be back at you in in a couple days uh you can go to theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast see you later